Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum. Before we begin, I have a programming note. This episode is being posted in September 2021. This month marks 20 years since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, when nearly 3,000 innocent people lost their lives, including 343 active members of the FDNY, three retired members, and one New York Fire Patrolman. And in the intervening 20 years, over 250 active and retired members of the department have succumbed to diseases attributed to their exposures at the World Trade Center site during the rescue and recovery efforts. This is arguably the most tragic event to ever befall the department, and many say that there are two different FDNYs, the one before September 11th and the one since. So on this sad occasion, we take a minute to remember that moment in history when the FDNY was shook to its core. We remember the brave men and women that gave their lives, and we remember those who worked tirelessly during the recovery efforts. We will never forget them. Now let's start the show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the 1864 attempt to burn down New York during the Civil War, the 1920 bombing on Wall Street, and starting in 1975, why there are no lockers at airports anymore. One of the darkest times in American history was when neighbor fought neighbor, brother fought brother, in regard to the question of slavery, a cause that divided our country in two. I'm talking, of course, about the American Civil War. There are quite a few stories that could be told about the FDNY during that period, but there was one event that, under today's vernacular, could be characterized as an act of terrorism. The year was 1864, three years since the start of the conflict between North and South. In March of that year, President Lincoln named Ulysses S. Grant as General of the Union Army. Military historians would say that by this time, the North was winning the war, and many were critical of Lincoln not bringing it to conclusion, either by striking a peace deal with Jefferson Davis or by a decisive military victory. New York Mayor Fernando Wood threatened that the city would secede from the Union if Lincoln did not change his policies. The Confederacy wanted to make a bold move to strike a devastating blow to their enemies in the North. A plot was conceived to send Confederate agents to New York City with the intent of sending bombs to disrupt the November presidential election. But with a heavy presence of federal troops in New York to thwart any violence, the likes of which were seen the year before in the New York City draft riots, the plan was changed. The Confederate terrorists were to target 19 of the most prestigious hotels in New York, as well as a theater and the popular Barnum's American Museum. The idea was for the bombs to not only kill innocent civilians, but also to start massive fires that the New York City Fire Department, already low on manpower due to the war, would be unable to extinguish. In the context of 1864, if successful, this might have been a tragedy on the magnitude of the 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center. The Confederate group consisted of eight men who made their way up from Virginia into Canada, circumventing New York, then coming south from a direction that would lessen suspicion of them. They dubbed themselves the Confederate Army of Manhattan. Their weapon of choice was an incendiary device called Greek Fire. The premise for the attack was for the terrorists to rent rooms in the hotels and purchase tickets for the theater and the museum, then to place the devices and activate them. Some historians say that they were explosive when exposed to air. Others say the fires intensified when doused with water. But even to this day, 
Weapons experts are not exactly sure what the mixture of chemicals was that went into the bombs. On the night of November 25th, the terrorists each planted Greek fire in several hotels. About 17 were actually placed, with two at other venues. At 17 minutes before 9 p.m., a fire was discovered in a room at the St. James Hotel. Bedding and furniture had been saturated with the accelerant and set aflame. A few minutes later, Barnum's Museum was ablaze. About the same time, four rooms of the St. Nicholas Hotel were alight. By 9.20 p.m., a room in the Lafarge House ignited. Then the Metropolitan House, Brandreth House, French's Hotel, the Belmont House, Wallach's Theater, and several other buildings were on fire. Included in the incendiary maelstrom were the Fifth Ward Museum Hotel, the Astor House, the Belmont Hotel, the Fifth Avenue Hotel, the Howard Hotel, Lafarge House, Lovejoy's Hotel, the Metropolitan Hotel, the St. James Hotel, the St. Nicholas Hotel, the Tammany Hotel, and the United States Hotel. But the plot failed. The fires were extinguished by the responding FDMI companies, many either being inconsequential in nature or simply fizzling out due to the incompetence of the bomb maker. In all cases, the FDMI members, all volunteer at the time, responded and did their jobs extinguishing the fires, and protecting the people of New York. A political cartoon appeared in Frank Leslie's newspaper on December 17th, showing a New York City firefighter standing atop a building marked New York, with Confederate President Jefferson Davis on a landmass marked Richmond, and the firefighter saying, quote, Dry up, old boss. You see, we could put you out with a pail of water. This may very well have been the first terrorist attack perpetrated on the city of New York, but certainly it was not the last. Not by a long shot. The New York City Fire Museum store can be found online at fdnymuseumshop.org. Exclusive merchandise includes our classic, superior quality NYC Fire Museum t-shirt featuring our treasured Brooklyn Engine Company 8 steam pumper and other museum artifacts. The back includes a firefighter scramble that was the museum's original logo. This one-of-a-kind shirt comes in adult sizes from small to double XL. Proceeds help support our preservation and educational programs. To browse additional apparel and products that celebrate the history of the fire department in New York City, go to fdnymuseumshop.org. That's fdnymuseumshop.org. Now more than ever, the New York City Fire Museum needs your support to pursue our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate. Now, back to the episode. Hate. It manifests itself in so many ways. But when someone exhibits their hate in a way that injures innocent people, it is difficult to give any credibility to their plight. Such was the case in 1920. On the morning of September 16th, as the noon bells of Trinity Church echoed down the canyon known as Wall Street, a nondescript man driving a cart stopped his horse and its heavy load just feet from Federal Hall, famous for being the site of George Washington's 1789 inauguration, across from the J.P. Morgan building at the corner of Wall and Broad Streets. He disappeared into the crowd of lunchgoers. Within minutes, the cart exploded into a hail of metal fragments. The streets around the stock exchange were just as crowded at lunchtime in 1920 as they are today. So when the blast occurred, the devastation was swift and severe. Not surprising given how the bomb was crafted. 
The cart was laden with what was determined to be about 100 pounds of dynamite that caused the explosion. But the death and destruction were amplified by 500 pounds of cast iron and lead sash weights, counterbalances used in the heavy windows of the time. The massive explosion was easily audible at the quarters of numerous nearby FDNY companies, like Engine and Ladder 10 on Liberty Street, Engine 6 on Beekman Street, and Ladder 15 on Water Street, to name a few. While there was no fire to contend with, what they found when they got to the scene were broken windows, pockmarked buildings, and massive human suffering. In all, 40 people were killed and over 300 injured, many of whom were severely so. So why did it happen? Well, the answer to that question was never conclusively found. It was believed that it was the work of anarchists, which were radical opponents to capitalism, the epitome of which was represented by both Morgan and the Stock Exchange. Remember, this was shortly after World War I, when the equilibrium of the world was still changing, and many people did not like the changes that they had to live with. But our point here is not to talk about the politics behind the event, is to once more revisit the bravery and fortitude of the uniform force of the FDNY. All of the companies previously mentioned responded. Remember, this is at a time before cell phones. It was even before most people had telephones. The companies only knew that something bad had happened and that it was their job to react quickly and decisively to save property and preserve life. They did what they always did and do, they sprang into action navigating through the death and debris, extinguishing any fires they found, and providing aid to the dead and injured. Never hesitating, never questioning, just doing what needed to be done. It was never determined who the criminals were that terrorized our city and the world on that day. From the FDNY perspective, it almost doesn't matter. There was a job to do, and they did it. Regardless of the politics, regardless of the profile of the terrorists. People were hurt. New Yorkers were hurt and the FDNY stood tall. The New York City Fire Museum shop offers a wide selection of museum souvenirs and FDNY licensed products. To acknowledge the 20th anniversary of the tragic events of September 11, 2001, and the 343 members of the FDNY who gave their lives that day, we are offering several commemorative items, including a Maltese cross decal and lapel pin, a 9-11 memorial challenge coin, and a beautiful high-quality 343 t-shirt. Proceeds from all sales help fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate, and to remember the brave men and women of the FDNY, not just on September 11th, but every day. You can make purchases at the museum or online by visiting our website, www.nycfiremuseum.org forward slash shop. The early 1970s was a very tumultuous time in New York City. The troubles began earlier in the 1960s, but reached a fever pitch by the 70s. Many will recall that in FDNY nomenclature, it was referred to as the war years. The city was on a downward financial spiral, causing all kinds of unrest, ranging from civil disobedience to rampant arson. For the first time in its history, FDNY firefighters got laid off. And at the same time, a group of terrorists called the FALN was responsible for over 130 bomb attacks around the country, including at least nine in New York, killing four civilians and one NYPD officer. The group was most active in 1975, and everyone in the city was on edge. On the night of December 29, 1975, the deadliest bomb went off. But the FALN did not claim responsibility for it. In fact, it was never determined who planted the device. 
The December 29th bomb was planted in a locker in the baggage claim area of the TWA terminal at LaGuardia Airport. That's right, there used to be lockers at airport terminals. Imagine that. You leave the cold weather of New York in December for the tropical climates of Florida or the Caribbean. But why take a coat with you? You leave it in a coin-operated locker at the airport and put it on when you return home to the frigid temperatures. Airport security in 1975 was nothing like it is today. Concourses were open to anyone that wanted to see friends off or welcome them back from their journey. And there were no metal detectors or x-rays. So it didn't take much to plant a bomb. This one was estimated to be the equivalent of 25 sticks of dynamite. When it exploded, the metal lockers became shrapnel that flew throughout the area and was responsible for all the deaths. The injuries were caused by the huge lobby windows that blew out. 11 people were killed and 74 were injured. The death toll might have been higher, but most of the passengers from the two flights that came through the terminal at 6 p.m. had already claimed their luggage and were on their way out of the airport. As it was, this was the deadliest terrorist attack to take place since the 1920 Wall Street bombing we just discussed. The explosion also caused a fire. It took the FDNY an hour to bring the two alarm blaze under control. In addition to the usual second alarm assignment, two rescue companies and one marine company responded. It was the sad work that followed after the fires were extinguished that demonstrated once again the role that the FDNY plays beyond firefighting in rescue and recovery. While we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, we must always remember that New York City has long been a target for those who choose death and destruction to make their hate known. And the FDNY has and will respond whenever called upon to put out the flames, rescue the survivors, recover the victims, and grieve for their own and the rest of the city, as we are reminded why they are called the bravest. And now it's time for our Throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. One of New York's bravest, Joseph Angyal, represented the United States in the 1948 Olympics. In what sport did he compete? The answer can be found in our last episode. You can listen to that and all our previous episodes by going to www.nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with the help of the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. If you leave a building on fire, close all doors as you exit. This will help contain the fire. If doors are left open, the flames and smoke can travel more quickly. We could all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.